นโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามสังไอ้ฮู้ทุกวันที่ทุกคนจะถามต่อไปว่าเมื่อไหร่ถ้าฉันจะถ่ายทอดเทศกาลในวันที่20ของฮานัมเพราะเราได้ผ่านวันที่20ของฮานัมฉันมาที่นี่ในเดือนมีนาคม20ปีก่อนแต่ฉันได้ถามอาจารย์อภินันโดว่าจะถ่ายทอดเทศกาลในวันที่20เพราะฉะนั้นพวกคุณคงรู้ว่าฉันจะไปที่ไหนในปีนี้ในเดือนมีนาคมฉันได้ถ่ายทอดเทศกาลในวันที่So thinking back 20 years, um, this afternoon when when uh, this idea uh, came to me, well, one of the first things that I registered was the the view that I had when I came here, the view of 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 what was going on, what I, my position in the community, what I was doing, the way I viewed it, that that really leapt. Out in my mind as a as a significant memory, and particularly what was happening just prior to my coming here. It was 1991, and I was on winter retreat at Amaravati that year uh, with Ajahn Sumedho leading the retreat. A very large crowd of us there, monks and nuns and and lay people, huge gathering. And I noticed that during a lot of the formal sitting meditation, my mind was very distracted. With the thought of coming to Hanum, I couldn't settle into the retreat. So, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, the, the last abbot, he was like that, and he did that, and, and I know they've got a big building project up there. They're building this Dhamma Hall, and and there's this monk there and that monk there, and have they got any Anagarikas? And and you know, am I going to get it right? Because I had been living in Devon before. In fact, I started the Devon Vihara, the monastery in Devon, a few years earlier. But there was only ever two or three of us living there. One other monk beside myself, and and a n a g a r i k a sometimes. So it was a very small outfit. But up here was a you know established place with a significant number of monks and some in areas a n a g a r i k a s and lay people and buildings. And so I was quite worried. I noticed about how I was going to handle it. But it was fortunate being on that retreat, whether it was as a result of the instruction that was being given or. Just my own grappling with the suffering. What I got to around to realizing was that the view I had about my position in the community was, you know, the leader. You know, I'm going to lead the community as if I'm some sort of a boss, and and some sort of like I've got to be in charge and um, be an expert, and that that was what was causing the suffering. And perhaps it was something to do with the chanting we were doing, where, in when we translate the chanting, we do in the evening. You know, I am a servant of the Buddha. The Buddha is my Lord and Guide, and I am a servant of the Dhamma. The Dhamma is my Lord and Guide. I am a servant of the Sangha. The Sangha is my Lord and Guide. And there's something about that that clicked with me. That actually the disposition of a servant, I found much more attractive. That, and that's what I wanted to do. Actually, I didn't want to be a master. I was quite willing to sit in the top place and, 
get the first pick of the cookies and so on. I didn't mind, you know, that part of the job. But the view, the idea of that I've got to somehow be the expert, I've got to be the master, was getting in the way. And I dropped it. And it was such a relief. And I, I remember, here we are 20 years later, I remember very, very well during that winter retreat, that a clear conscious sense of I want to serve the Buddha I want to be a servant of the Buddha. I want to be a servant of the Dhamma. I want to, and like imagine being in a royal court or something and being a servant. I don't want to be a king. The view that I've got to be a king or a master was something that uh, was leading to suffering and, and clearly inappropriate in my case. And So letting go of that was, a, was actually a good move, I found out, because when I came here, uh, to some degree, I noticed that actually other people also expected me to be the king to be the boss, to be the expert, to be the captain. Uh, there, there had been other uh, leaders of the community here who had a particular style. Um, some of them had been in the American military, and I'd never been in anybody's military. <laughs> in fact, I worked quite hard to stay out of it. Uh, and I didn't exactly um, bow down to the military model of, of community, and I was uh, in my my. My life prior to joining the community, some of you know, was, was, was with the beautiful people on hippie communes. So, you know, I feel more drawn towards hippie communes than the military models for a leading community. But there were other people here when I arrived who were used to a particular way of doing things and their expectations of me, uh, I noticed, were really actually a burden. But having made that clear decision, you know, I, this is, I'm a servant. I didn't have to talk about it but I could hold that view of myself. And so I would think, you know, how do I serve the community in this situation? And it drew on a very, a very creative, I found it drew on a very creative engagement with community life. Rather than being an expert, which is like, well, what do experts do in this situation? Well, I knew I wasn't an expert. If you, know, if you think you're supposed to be an expert, well, then you look at other experts and you imitate them. You pretend to be an expert. Well, if you know you're not an expert, it's best to let go of that. And, and so I found this, this view of myself as, as being a servant. Somebody was here to serve the Buddha, serve the Dhamma, serve the Sangha. How do I serve the Sangha? And then I found creative ideas of doing things in a different way would emerge. And a certain, also a certain confidence about that. It wasn't that I felt that I had to have all the right ideas. And I remember there was one scene over breakfast that came up, which was quite disturbing in the community, that up until I came here, we, the community always had breakfast together, the monks, the Anagarikas, Samaneras, and the lay people, lay men, lay women, all together in a very formal way in the reception room. We'd sit and have breakfast together. And um, there was something about the stultified atmosphere there that uh, somehow didn't feel very authentic and which is a painful way to start the day. I thought, well, breakfast is important. It's a pity to spoil it. Well, is there another way of doing this? And just giving it some time and then it just also what appeared to me was the fact that the monastic community never had any quality time together. It occurred to me, well, maybe, maybe we could just have breakfast together. In those days, we still had number one cottage. Some of you might have been around then, I don't know, but... I thought, well, the lay people could have breakfast there and we could have breakfast on our own. 
And, oh, that really threw the cat amongst the pigeons. Some of the monastic community, oh, no, the lay people won't like that. They'll get very upset. And, and so I waited and I listened to my own reservations about it and other people's reservations about it. But something about it felt right. I didn't know it was right, but it felt right. It came from a sense of, yeah, this is the right thing to do, a way of showing respect to the Sangha with some confidence. Said, well, we're going to do it this way for a while and see what happens. And it worked, actually. It was very good. The monastic community really benefited from having quality time together. We could sort out things amongst ourselves without having to worry about talking about things that you don't want to talk about in front of other people. And the lay people ended up actually enjoying, as far as I could tell, they're enjoying being able to have breakfast on their own without upsetting the monks. They just sit next door there and they could talk about the monks and you know, like they like to do. And, and they could be happy and we were happy. And I... I suppose there was a few people who maybe thought it wasn't a good idea, but generally it worked. So that was something that I felt I had, uh, it was very significant for me and I felt for the community, an opportunity to engage with a, a sort of creative involvement with the community. Uh, I had enough confidence and also it was enough space from the other monasteries. And though this was before mobile phones and even normal telephones were expensive in those ways, and certainly no email or internet or blogs or Skype or anything like that. And in those days, Northumberland was Siberia. In fact, the monks and chitters, they used to talk about it as Siberia. You know, going to Northumberland, going to Harnham, it was like going to Siberia. And so it was a kind of healthy distance from, from you know, the other places, and that was quite good. Well, we could just get a little creative about this, and nobody's going to hear about it until we've been doing it for a few months, and then... Maybe they'll let us get away with it. That felt good. But with this, uh, also, I was, I was still very young in those days, <laughs> a lot of creative enthusiasm and uh, interest and opinions. And, but something that I found I had to really work with and learn from was you can have creativity and creative ideas, but the creativity's got to be tempered. That there's a thing about creativity that it can take you over. And uh, so, like, when we were building this Dhamma Hall at the time, when I arrived here, the roof was up and the walls were here, the side walls were here, there was no windows, and there was no back here, there was just a big open, open space up here behind the Buddha, and no floor, just a concrete floor. And people had all sorts of views about it, but because they were used to the military model, they said, OK, what are we going to do about this, and what are we going to do about that? And I, well... They want me to say what to do. So we could do this, we could do that. And, and so I started applying my creative ideas. But there's something about creativity. If you're not careful, it can become compulsiveness. There's a difference between being creative and being compulsive. I know there was one situation where the plan behind the Buddha was to have a great big bay window. And they'd been fundraising for it. The money was there. And behind the Buddha was going to be this huge, great big window that you would look out and and when they told me about it I was absolutely convinced that's wrong that's completely wrong you know that people are going to be walking behind there you're going to have trees moving you're there's going to be whatever clouds and rain and and when you look at the Buddha when I want to look at the Buddha I want to see stillness when I go into a Dhamma hall and I look at the shrine I want to be reminded of stillness I don't want a view that's going to take me out and that's what my attention is doing all the time anyway it's always going out through the eyes and the ears and smell and so on. I want something that's going to reflect stillness 
and take me inwards. And also I had heard that the Chinese, Chinese philosophy of Feng Shui said that uh, you should never have a light source behind the Buddha, which I felt gave me a little extra authority in exercising my opinion. So I said, no, we're not having a window behind the Buddha. We're going to have a wall all the way up and we'll have a light source above the Buddha but no light source behind the Buddha. And it, it, it caused some problems. Um, it, it, partly it was to do with the way that I exercised my creativity. So that was important in those early years. I can remember back that being, I don't know, I think I was about 40 at the time. Without discipline, creativity can go into being uh, compulsiveness very easily. And that fear, I know there's a fear that I've had for a lot of my life of squashing creativity. And I know in, in some of the other monasteries I lived in before I came here, I felt that, that was, you know, it was judged. You have the creative impulse to do things a slightly different way. And one felt very judged for that and kind of, it's threatening, it's dangerous, it's, you know, Protestant values. And Ajahn Chah didn't have that. I mean, when lived at Wat Bapong or Wat Nana Chah, in fact, Ajahn Sumato reminded me recently that the, um, the very first shrine we had in our grass-roofed meeting hall at Wat Nana Chah was a bit dull and dreary, and he asked me to pretty it up a little bit, so I went off and I did some tie-dyeing. <laughs> old hippie, I got a piece of old cloth and combined a few different dyes together and did some tie-dyed cloth and made this background to it, and that seemed to please everybody. And then, and then we did move to the next big building of bricks and mortar, and, and I was involved in doing the designing of that. And, and some of the monks were talking to Ajahn Chah and said, oh, what about this, this young monk, this young New Zealand monk? He's doing all this designing and colour scheming and whatever. And is that okay? Is that in keeping with the training? And Ajahn Chah's response was, yeah, it's okay, so long as he doesn't get drunk on it. And that's the thing. That was very different from being judgmental, which is what I, I picked up from other quarters, that, that the creativity, the creative enthusiasm, the love of life uh, is threatening to the spiritual life. And there's something there that you know, I don't trust. And certainly the idea that when you introduce discipline that it's going to somehow crush that spirit. Well, somewhere along the line, I, I realized that you've got to basically embrace that as a mindful exercise recognize the, the aliveness, the vitality of creativity, but recognize the function of discipline, of structure, being able to, and to not, not take sides. And that's what a mindfulness can do. Mindfulness can equip us with the skill of being able to hold apparent conflict, dilemmas. You know. Creativity and discipline, from one perspective, might seem to be opposed, but they don't have to be opposed. So there were many instances of that, and some I got right, some I didn't get right. I know there was um, a period where, from up on high, um, the word went out that we, uh, we needed to change the chanting style and, uh, because chanting wasn't very appealing. And so certain individuals were given the, the task of um, correcting our chanting. And I wasn't one of those individuals. And uh, I wasn't very happy about that because we got handed this new style of chanting which to me sounded more like the, the military model again and apparently was accurate according to the pronunciation of Pali. Long words here, clipped words there and 
short syllables, long syllables, and it, to my ear, it just sounded so awful, and and I, I felt a tremendous rebellious streak in me. This was actually before I came here, um, and I, I had I, I, fortunately I was reading something at the time about a period in British history when I don't know who was it who came first. I'm not sufficiently aware of of English history of the the Normans and the Saxons and and all these characters, but anyway. One new lot came over, probably it was the French, they came over and, and they put their new king in charge and the new king, he says to the monks, well, you're going to chant like this. And, but the monks, they were in the monastery, they basically wanted the old style of chanting and so they insisted on doing the old style of chanting. So the king, he sent along his archers and they were in the cathedral and they were standing up there on the balcony and the monks were down there and the monks refused to do the new chanting. So his archers were up there picking them off with arrows, bows and arrows and I thought, well, actually, I'm going to curb my passionate resistance to this new style of chanting. I don't want to be a source of conflict in the community. So, uh, so some of the things I got right and some of the things I got wrong and some of the um, young monks who've lived with me over the years, I still apologize to them when I meet them um, <laughs> and ask for forgiveness because you know, we were just trying to do our best, but some of it was really, it was really pioneer zone. And, and we all come to this with our particular personal conditioning. And we really don't know, you know, a lot of situations we just don't know how to handle. And I, I know there were, there were periods where some down south they would send me certain monks they didn't know how to handle. I don't know why they did that. They had this idea that, oh, perhaps Ajahn Menendo can handle them. And there was a fashion to send difficult monks up to... Northumberland, perhaps again it was distance, you know, I don't know what. We corrected that eventually when I announced to the elders' meeting or terrors' meeting, as it was called at the time, that I, I don't accept young monks unless they want to come here. Uh, you don't tell them to come here. But there were some young monks who came here who were really, really enthusiastic in their spiritual commitment, and yet. To me, it would seem quite clear that they were obstructed on another level. It wasn't a lack of spiritual aspiration. It was, it was a psychological obstruction that they were suffering from. And I never saw a conflict, personally, at that stage in my life anyway. I didn't see a conflict between uh, the spiritual aspirations and, and, and psychological work. I, I, seemed, I had met... A, um, well, eventually I met a Jungian analyst and also a couple of very good psychotherapists who had a spiritual foundation in their life. Psychoanalysts, psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, anybody in that department who doesn't have a spiritual foundation in their life, I, I always warn people to stay away from them because those guys have got some seriously powerful tools at their disposal. But if they don't know that they're answerable to a higher authority, then... Be cautious. But these individuals I met, the, uh, as I said, the, the, the uh, Jungian uh, psychoanalyst and these two psychotherapists, uh, both had spiritual foundations in their lives. And, and, um, and I was very impressed by their skills. And again, with a slightly creative uh, approach to the monastic life, I, I encouraged some of these young monks to go and, and actually... It received some consultation. It was, if it had been heard of by the other monasteries, it would have been very frowned upon. We, in fact, I was told, 
that I was betraying the Buddha and that it was not within the Eightfold Path to use psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. And, well, I listened to that and I, I felt disappointed to hear it, but for whatever reason I still had sufficient confidence to say, well, you know, I don't know that I'm right, but I don't know that I'm wrong either. And I trust this experiment. You know, so long as there's an ability to say no to something, which I knew I could do. I didn't have to say yes to this experiment. I didn't have to. I wasn't being intimidated to sending young monks to see a psychoanalyst or psychotherapist. I knew I could say no to it. Well, if you know you can say no to it, well, then there's room to say yes. And so this is the thing about creative impulse, that if we don't know we can say no to ourselves, well, then it it seems to me it's a lot more like regurgitated compulsive behavior rather than uh, than creative engagement and so actually that proved to be very useful and for those individuals they 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 were uh, very and still are very grateful to me for that encouragement and i remain very grateful for having met those individuals interestingly as the years went by it has happened in some other communities um that uh, monks and nuns have become so interested now in psychotherapy that they, they actually seem more interested in that than contemplating dukkha and the cause of dukkha and, and, and putting themselves on a meditation retreat. And so things seem to swing to the other extreme for a while, which is very much, as you probably know, the nature of human behavior and the nature of communities. You know, things swing from one side to the other. And for one period here, we were... We were really the, um, we were definitely, everybody felt sorry for us. Um, I don't think they do these days. I think we generally people look upon us as being quite okay and trustworthy, but there was a period where it seemed like everything was going wrong here, and I was in charge. And um, one of those periods was when we got offered a writ from the court, so threatening us with uh, legal action because the uh, there was some, um, questions about how the land, the property was obtained here. This was before my time, before I came here, but the case that was uh, thrust at us was that the trustees had obta- obtained this property through undue influence and unconscionable bargain. And that was very new to me as a as a young abbot. I thought, what on earth is unconscionable bargain? And I had to look into it. And eventually I had to sit down with lawyers and trustees and get very involved in all this legal stuff and and my goodness I had no idea what lawyers were like <clears throat> and one of them he had written this atrocious letter uh, to us and it was just we had this ongoing lovely friendship with the old farmer up the hill here and I'd go and visit him regularly and he'd come and eat with us and and now we're being accused of all these really nasty things and I just didn't know how to handle it just really didn't know how to handle it and uh, <clears throat> so legal expenses, serious money being spent on lawyers and then other problems in the community. Eventually, we also got into not knowing how, what to do with our sewerage. And the sewerage was running onto the neighbor's property and how do you solve that? And so everybody felt sorry for us and so we were definitely the underdogs for quite a long while. But when you're the underdog, well, it seems to me that... Um, you just have to be willing to learn from that too. And this is where 
my um, my training, my years of living with Ajahn Chah were just so hugely valuable, and and the way that, particularly the way he taught about doubt, that when you're confronted with, I really don't know how to deal with this, I really don't know what to do. You don't have to judge that as something going wrong. Here I am, 60 years old, I've been a monk for 35 or something years, and I can still feel that way when doubt comes up. When doubt comes up, I can still very easily feel like something's going wrong. But it's wonderful to reflect and remember. I can still vividly remember sitting in front of Ajahn Chah and spewing out my doubts to him, and, and... He's sitting there with a smile on his dial, just looking at me, listening to me. And, and he knew very well what I was talking about, you know, and he, he just quietly says to me, oh, yeah, I've been there too. Yeah, I know what that's like. I've been there too. And he says, you know what? He says, I can still remember now. And he says, you know, if something's uncertain and you want it to be certain, you're going to suffer. And he, there was no judgment of what he said. There was just a smile on his face and he was shaking his head. You know. If something's uncertain, actually uncertain, and you want to make it certain, you're going to suffer. And that was such a gift. Such a, the reality is, this is uncertain. I mean, I don't know what to do with a bunch of lawyers that cost, I don't know, 200 pounds an hour or something, ridiculous money. That was, And we're talking about 15 years ago. You know, I don't know, 500 pounds an hour these days they probably cost. This, this lawyer from London, this high-flying lawyer came up and 200 pounds an hour we were paying her to give us some advice on things and I don't know what she's even talking about. Most of the time and going to court and you know, sitting in the courtroom in Newcastle and waking up in the morning, you know, sweating and basically feeling like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to run this monastery. All these young monks looking at me as if I'm supposed to know what I'm doing and all these wonderful lay people coming and ask me to give Dhamma talks and retreats, meditation retreats. And here I am having panic attacks, yeah. addicted to coffee or tea. I don't know which my addiction was at the time. I tend to alternate between my addictions in those days. You know, I just don't know what I'm doing. But to remember what Ajahn Shah was saying, that doubt does not have to be an enemy. You know, doubt also is just so. The truth is you don't know what to do. There's nothing wrong with knowing that you don't know. In fact, there's everything right about knowing that you don't know. When you know you don't know, you've got your feet on the ground again. Our problem is that when we don't know, we're in so much of a hurry to find out. We're so greedy to know. I am. I'm so greedy to know. You know, I'm addicted to knowing everything about everything, and I try to sound like I do when I don't. Yeah, but that, that lusting for knowing, lusting for knowledge, lusting for certainty. I don't know where it comes from. Actually, these days I don't seem to worry so much about where it comes from. I don't mind. Somebody told me it's my astrological configuration. It's the sun and the moon, the juxtaposition of the sun and the moon. I, apparently yeah, there's signs that I could be mad. And so it could be my astrology, it could be my peculiar upbringing, fundamentalist evangelicals, you know, they've got their own way of making you a little bit crazy. And um, I don't know, maybe it's my karma. Maybe it's, you know, from the past life. I don't know what the cause for this, this longing for certainty. But from a perspective of practice of mindfulness, you can know that you don't know. And then if you, like, when you know you don't know, it gives you a certain authority again. This is not, this is not 
willful trying to know or willful authority. It's a, it's a more settled sense of authority. It's kind of a personal authority that you can rest with and say, well, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know if this is even going to survive. You know, I don't know what the outcome of this legal case is going to be. Maybe we'll lose this whole monastery. It was a huge legal bill we had in the end. I don't even know how it got paid. People were generous. People gave contributions and it got paid. The case got resolved, sort of. And so anyway, that's been a very important aspect over the years of keeping this ship afloat, not pretending that you know when you don't know. And at the same time, letting that creative interest, that creative, you know, thinking in different ways. You know, we had this, this, this problem with the sewerage, which was, which was mega. I Many of you will remember just years of trying to find a solution to the sewerage that I won't bore you with all the details, but you know, just to say that before the old farmer died, we did have an agreement to put a new system down the back of a hill here. We would put it in. It was in front of his lawyer, in my cootie, his lawyer there, uh, and they were all witnessed. It wasn't signed, unfortunately, but we had this agreement. We would put it in. We would pay for it, but we would share the use of it. But then, unfortunately, he died before signing anything, and the new neighbour said, no way, Jose, you're not putting anything on our property. So they cut us off, put in their own sewerage system, and we're stuck with this little weeny quarter acre of land or something that we've got, and a lot of people and a lot of sewerage, and no solution to it. And, but fortunately, this principle of a creative engagement with discipline and taking time, that's also, that's also very important, a very important element. You know, mindfulness, creative involvement, giving it time. Yeah. And then one day, one of the members of our Sangamitta committee, as it was called then, the building committee, just got in touch and said, I've got it, I've got the solution. And he'd been out hiking uh, in the moors somewhere, and he stayed at a, uh, a youth hostel or one of these places. And in the middle of the night, he suddenly woke up and said, they've got the sewage system that we need. And they did, they had a reed bed system. A very, very small piece of land, right in the middle of an area of outstanding natural beauty, so they weren't able to actually spill out and create any problems. They had to manage an irregular number of residents like we do, only a few people, and suddenly you got, all of a sudden you've got 300 people here for a few hours, like we have several times through the year. Very similar situation, and it was. It was exactly the right solution, and we did it. So another very important element in this process of uh, trying to steward this ship through the oceans, through the storms and the calm waters of the 20 years that I've been here, has been to have a, a quality of conscious trust, you know, to not just have a naive trusting attitude, which is sort of like gullibility, or head in the sand, and I, I've never been a great fan of that attitude. I know when when I was a teenager and, and some of my friends were, were going off and seeing this guru or that guru and, and getting initiated and something with me just really shied away from all that. I don't, this kind of naive giving away your authority to experts or, or, or external agents of any sort uh, was not very appealing. And, and yet, on the other hand, there is 
something about trust, which is clearly uh, very important, profoundly important. And it's, um, you know, when, when the Buddha gave his teaching on the five spiritual um, faculties, and the first one is, is sadha, or confidence, or faith, or trust. And without it, uh, not just in Buddhism, but in all religious disciplines, faith, confidence, trust has got a, a profoundly important role. So what is it? What is this place? And so I've found over the years of being here, being tested with apparently absolutely impossible dilemmas, you know, quarrelling neighbours and legal disputes and problems with sewerage and, and larger issues in the rest of the community, the, the monastic community, as the years went by, we, the communities expanded and more branch monasteries in New Zealand, Australia, Italy and America and and the boys and the girls start to grow up and they start to get a little bit kind of, well, we don't need you anymore. That's, you know, what children do when they talk to their parents and so that's there were periods where we started to talk to Ajahn Sumato like that. So, well, you know, what about you start to think about stepping down? I mean, nobody ever said it quite so rudely to him but but there was that kind of movement for a while. And, uh, and then there's, of course, there's the resistance to change and then there's the, the force of diversity and the force of conformity coming together and clashing. And, and how do you deal with this? Well, I found that uh, trusting, trusting, the disposition of trusting, what you trust in is one thing, but the disposition of trusting is also very important. The disposition of conscious trusting. It's an orientation of our hearts to be able to choose to trust mindfully. And as I, over the years, was, as I said, challenged by incidents, situations with young monks here and not to mention a few difficult lay people as well over the years who kind of told me a few things and, um, and gave me a few good opportunities to deepen my practice, which I suppose on some level I am grateful for. <laughs> But one of the things is that it forced me to look into this whole thing of, of trusting. What does it mean to be to trust in a wise way, in a skillful way? It has to be, as far as I'm concerned, it has to be. We have to be engaged in a, a level of practice that is embodied. It has to be an embodied mindfulness. Yeah. There is a way of practicing mindfulness that is once removed, that is split off. We talk about watching. Witnessing, being mindful, this language. You know, if you're already in a split-off space in your head where you, you're looking at life like once removed and you're looking at yourself performing all the time and, and never really engaged, never really present, it's not grounded practice. And you can have all sorts of very difficult, wild, unruly defilements growing in unawareness. And... And, and I would suggest, well, I'm convinced actually, that we can't live with a trusting orientation to life. We can't live from a place of trusting in true principles, trusting in reality. Again, not just what we trust in, but we can't live with a trusting orientation if we're not embodied. Because as soon as we come into our body, we feel all this wild stuff, all this unacknowledged rage and desire and so on that's whirring around. But if our mindfulness practice is embodied, then little by little we learn to find a way of, of learning from all of this. 
There's nothing that has to be excluded from our mindfulness practice. Rage can be included. We can learn from that. Indignation. I mean, when I first read this letter from this lawyer, I mean, please, there weren't many people around. I mean, how how could they say such a thing? Well, no, actually, my first response was, oh, they can't be serious. (laughs) You know, no, you can't be serious. Well, then later on, I realized they were serious. And the, the indignation, the rage that I felt, and the fear I felt, felt very threatened. And, um, and then also the desires over the years, the desires that one has, you know, desires for, um, you know, desires to have a building project finished. And you know, when this place was a building site, years and years it went on, this was a building site. And you have to be in here all day long and, and you're getting cement in your face and breathing dust in and, and, not to mention my cootie, which was a building site, and number five, which was a building site. Just, it seems to be that most of the time I've been here, this place has been a building site, and so periodically I'd have these, these longings to just, oh, I wish it was all finished. Now, if, you, if we don't acknowledge that longing in the body, we don't really see that as energy, we're not really with it, then we can't live with a trusting orientation, a trusting disposition. If we're denying anything, any passion, then we can't be trusting. But basically, we're lying to ourselves, and so we can't trust. That's the basic formula. If we want to have a trusting relationship with life, with reality, we've got to stop lying to ourselves. So when there's desire, I really wish we would have an inspiring, young, intelligent, friendly monk come and live here instead of these difficult ones. I really, I really want these ones to leave. I'm not pointing to this side of the room because I haven't, you know... I mean, it is this side of them, actually, when I didn't have it was like all my wishes come true when he arrived. You know, so then my, I do actually get some of the things I want as well. That's true. Uh, but, <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is that when these desires are there, they're very normal. Desires to have, desires to get rid of. You know, if we don't live through them honestly, then they go underground. Then we can't trust ourselves. And that's one of the greatest sadnesses. When we can't trust ourselves, we can't trust anybody else. And so that's, uh, that's been very significant. And again, I'm totally indebted to Ajahn Chah, uh, my training. And that book that probably some of you have read, the one called Everything is Teaching Us, this is very much his attitude. It's not like when you're sweeping leaves, you know, that's not practice. You just get the sweeping leaves over and done with and then you go and meditate. That's the practice. Or pulling water from the well is not practice. Just get that over and done with and go and practice. No. It's all practice. I think I was. I said this recently in another talk I gave, where somebody gave him the translation of the Hui Ning Sutta, um, and, uh, and it was translated into Thai and, and from the Mahayana tradition. And, and they asked him, you know, can people in this training have the same insights? And he said, Yeah, of course you can. He said, Just do what I tell you to do: sweep leaves, clean the toilets mindfully, and you'll realize just the same thing that he's talking about. And so he didn't split off practice into. You know, this is practice and that's not practice. It's all practice. That's one reason why the compilation of Ajahn Chah's talks, which we're working on at the moment, and Samanero Gambiro here and I have been putting a lot of time, and some of you also have been helping with, with uh, the final proofreading of this compilation of all Ajahn Chah's talks, are going to be redistributed, reprinted, and redistributed for free in three volumes. Daily life practice, formal practice, and renunciate practice. It's all practice. 
whether it's the practice of washing the dishes, talking to your mother on the telephone, going for an interview for a job, or whether it's sitting meditation, being on retreat, whatever we're doing, it's all practice. And if we have this attitude, well, my experience has been over these years, that we can learn from everything. There have been, and there still are, some very, very challenging, very difficult situations in trying to run a monastery. And many of you will be aware right now of the, some of the stuff that there is out there on the blogosphere, uh, criticising Ajahn Chah and Wat Pa Pong and Ajahn Sumato and all of us, and uh, we're getting it all wrong and we're hopeless, and, and, uh, and, and you can't dismiss this stuff. You can't believe it as well. Personally, I can tell you you shouldn't believe a lot of it. But it's not right to dismiss it either. So how do we listen to it without getting pulled into it? Well, I would suggest that if we commit ourselves to being a servant of the Buddha, not an expert who's got all the answers, a servant of the Dhamma, not somebody who knows everything, a servant of the Sangha, somebody who's committed to harmony, and that our practice is embodied, we're really willing to learn from everything, then we can have a trusting disposition. We can trust in the Dhamma. We say, well, there is a solution to this. The sewage, it looked like we were never going to resolve it. It really did look like we were never going to resolve it. But with a commitment to practice, a resolution emerged. And so that's my, my feeling about running monasteries, running relationships, dealing with dilemmas like the global dilemma at the moment, yeah. Earthquake, well, that earthquake in, in New Zealand, that was pretty bad. Well, then what about the earthquake in Japan? Well, then about what about the tsunami? Well, then about what about the radiation? And then about what about Libya? Not to mention Yemen and, and Bahrain and all the other places. And you know, wherever we look, we can see and feel crisis, intensity, dilemma. How do we meet it? Well, my encouragement would be to turn inwards, not as a rejection of what's going on outwards. That's what sometimes people hear when you hear Dhamma talk about turning inwards. It's not a rejection of what's out there, but it's just finding the, the other perspective on what we see out there. Even the, even the perspective of out there and in there is a condition of mind that we need to investigate. So if we don't have some confidence, some creative involvement in an embodied practice with trust, in the inner dimension, that I don't see that we're going to really be able to deal with these difficulties that we're fronted with, confronted with. So it's been a meaningful 20 years, a valuable 20 years. Somebody was asking me, what do you think about the next 20 years? Well, I'm going to try and not think about it. <laughs> so thank you very much for your attention this evening. Thank you very much for your attention this evening.